have a lot of fun. Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. All right. I am Mark Severino, a grown man who likes to talk about duck comics. And I have with me today, if you can introduce yourself. I'm uh, Ryan Bailey. I like Mark and I'm (laughs) largely unfamiliar with duck comics. Yeah, so you're going to be filling the role, the newbie role this week, and um, we are going to be talking this week about Donald Duck and the Mummy's Ring. Um, so my my background, I am a super fan of Carl Barks. I've been reading the stories since I was like eight years old, um, have pretty much every one of them, and... Uh, uh, got it in my head to do a podcast to explore them in order because that's something I've never done. And again, I could talk and talk about them. Growing up, this is most of what I read. This is most of what I was into, at least comic book wise. Uh, Ryan, do you want to tell me a little bit about your background with Barks and comics in general? I know almost nothing about Carl Barks except for um, kind of his role in. Uh, being an, an early creator of, of this whole world here. I actually didn't read that many comics growing up. Um, it wasn't until um, like the 2008 recession, I was, <laughs> I was well into adulthood and uh, I had a lot of uh, comics that I had gotten from a friend and I just started reading them at night and I was like, oh, I really like this. <laughs> so um, for the last few years, I've had like a Marvel Unlimited subscription and everything and I've I actually keep track of what I've read. I recently passed 4,000 issues of Marvel uh, in the last five years. Um, So I I usually read about 1,000 comics a year, but almost exclusively Marvel. Not necessarily with the, the, quote, funny animal comics. Yes, exactly. (laughs) In at least um, a couple of the Duck comics, the um, superhero ones are are lampooned a little bit as a super snooper. So that's awesome. I, I am glad that you got a chance because, you know, you and I have known each other for, uh, since the beginning of high school, we've been friends for a long time. And I mean, you've probably heard me talk about these a lot. I, I don't remember if I lobbied you to read them or give them a try. Do you remember if you ever gave them any, any try? I don't uh, recall ever actually sitting down and, and reading one. I'm sure there must have been some point, probably in high school, where you where you you know thrust it into my lap and was like, "Read this, it's amazing." And then I probably did, and I said, "Yeah, that's pretty good." You know, for someone who's such a big fan, I've I've actually always been really reluctant to thrust or foist them on people because I think there's always a little bit of of embarrassment. Um, 
misplaced, but uh, nonetheless, a little bit of embarrassment about about what they are. And, you know, growing up, it was definitely um, cooler to be into the Marvel or other superhero comics. And I, I read some of those too, but these these were my first love. It's very exciting to me to kind of talk about them in the real world and to have this built-in excuse to make the people that I know um, give them a shot. I am going to go over some of the details about this story. This one, again, as mentioned, is called Donald Duck and the Mummy's Ring. And this is... Um, this was published in September of 1943. This was originally published in four color number 29. It has been reprinted many, many times. I, I think most famously, though, it was um, the cover art for the very well-received Carl Barks in Color Library. The interesting thing about this story you know, last episode I had Eric on, um, who you were, were mutual friends, you know him well, and we talked about the first Bark story, but that was kind of a technicality, I think, because Donald Duck Finds Pirate Gold is only partly a Carl Barks story. It was based on a cartoon script. It was not written by Barks. It was only partially done by him. So this is really the first opportunity to get into a Carl Barks story that is 100% his. This was created entirely by him. And so this represents kind of an early look at his, his independent style, what he would go on to do. Before we get into the story and our thoughts, I'd love to take a moment to kind of go back in time a bit and talk about what was going on, what, what our historical context is. Um, there's going to be a few of these stories around this era that are, you can't escape the fact that we're in the, the height of World War II still. We've got, I, I, I checked on Wikipedia, this is about when Japanese internment really began in earnest. So there's a, a pretty sad fact for you. Um, on, on a little bit of a lighter note, this was when Roger Waters of Pink Floyd and Gloria Gaynor were both born. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and, and then for the purposes of our podcast today, I think the interesting thing is that the United States and a lot of the world were re-entering one of their waves of Egyptomania. Do you, do you know much about uh, about these cycles of Egyptomania, Ryan? Um, no, I don't. Uh, I, I feel like um, it's. Uh, I've seen it as more as an individual thing where little kids get really into Egypt for a while and they want to learn more about pharaohs and all that. And I didn't realize uh, whole cultures did the same thing. Tell me more. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the U.S. was one of those little kids um, several times throughout our history. You know, when every time there was a big discovery, I think, um, you know, in, in Egypt, uh, some antiquity, the country and a lot of the world went through these like feverish um, frenzies where Egyptian culture, both modern but mostly ancient, was very in vogue and it entered the pop culture. And, you know, this was, of course, you had uh, the the Mummy, Boris Karloff's The Mummy is the most famous one from this era. That came out in 1932. So it was it was a decade old at this point, but it, it 
left a big mark on on pop culture. But yeah, just Egyptian lore um, is something that the U.S. kind of fell in love with uh, every couple of decades. So that that's kind of what this came out of. I want to take some time during each episode to talk about if there are any notable appearances um, character-wise in these stories. There, there aren't really a lot of recurring characters in this one. You do have a couple of notable um, kind of one-off characters in uh, the, the Bay of El Daga and his emissaries that we'll get into. Um, to me, the interesting thing is that just like in the last story, you have um, the old Disney standby villain, Black Pete, or at least someone who basically looks like him is kind of the person who causes a lot of the trouble. Oh, I guess they they never actually name him, do they, in this comic? He's just a guy. Yeah. Right. Just... Yeah. Did, did you read him as being Pete? I did. Yeah, that was my initial thought. Yeah. So I think, you know, early on, Carl Barks was just figuring things out and, and it's kind of what Disney did. They're like, we need a villain. We're going to use Pete. Um, I, I really delighted last episode in one of telling Eric one of my favorite Disney facts, which is that Peg Leg Pete actually predates Mickey Mouse. That's how long they've been going back to that well. So um, I think Barks is going to be out of that habit soon. I can't remember specifically if we see any more Pete lookalikes, but, um, you know, Thing is it's interesting that he's just their generic villain so um let's see i guess this is the first time in one of these episodes that i'm going to get to go into what i hope is a recurring segment where we can just talk a little bit about the educational value that was in this story but um i'm thinking as i go that i'm going to kind of wait and talk about that afterwards a little more reflectively but i i will mention that Carl Barks did something in this story that uh, he becomes famous for, and this is going to be a great example um, that he famously really loved to dive into uh, National Geographic and other sources for some of these stories to get some awesome background and to um, really ground it in something that he was interested in. So this is going to kind of set that template, and we can talk about some of the things he includes um, by the end. So, Ryan, are you ready to dive into the mummy, the mummy's ring? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to ask you, uh, as the, uh, as the expert, um, how much, um, how much of this art style and and even characterization is, um, original Barks, and how much of it is what he had to continue from what Disney was using. He didn't. He didn't create Donald, right? Right. Oh, these are great newbie questions. Um, no, he didn't create Donald. Donald had. Donald's been around for a few years at this point. He was originally in. He first appeared on screen in as a side character in The Wise Little Hen, I believe, and I think. Ooh, I think an Italian artist, Al Taliaferro, is the one who may have used him in um, print first and kind of shaped the character in print a bit. But but that's a good point, right? Because he's probably going with a bit of the Disney house style uh, early on. You know, that's what he definitely did for the storyboarding, the, the last one, which was based on storyboard work. 
Um, but, I, but I definitely think you can see him creating his own style. I, I think you'll see as we go forward, um, I'm excited to have you back for more of these. And I, I think you'll see that this art is really not too distinct from what he's gonna go on to do later. You know, he's definitely gonna develop his own style and really refine it. Um, I, I myself noticed, I find the nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, some, some of their, the panels, some of their cheeks are kind of puffed out in a way that I don't think he or other artists usually do. So I did notice that reading it this time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a great question. Looking at how his, I, I'm so excited to look at how his art and his style um, is going to evolve over these comics. I will say, um, I guess maybe the most uh, Marxian background I have is um, DuckTales was very big uh, when I was a kid and it oh, yeah. completely blew up my second grade, I'm going to say. <laughs> and uh, we were all <clears throat> arguing with each, over, each other over what we thought the lyrics of the theme song said, um, which is hard to decipher as a seven-year-old or whatever we were. Um, but I do, recognize, I do recognize the art style, just kind of the way... Um, the way the lines kind of bend and the way like their feet bend as they're walking and everything, it's very fluid. Um, and, and it is very much the same style that we get in the cartoon show 40 years after this, 45 years. You're definitely right, right? The show took a lot of um, notes from the comic. It's based largely on it. Um, something to know is that I, I think the show is... It ranges from being well-liked to tolerated by Barks fans. I, of course, loved it growing up as a kid. And I discovered DuckTales and Barks comics around the same time. I probably started watching um, the show within a couple of months after I'd read my first few Barks comics. Um, but yeah, they're not, they're not really that well-loved among the, the comics fans, which, you know, is kind of to be expected because... They make a lot of concessions for Saturday morning, um, which is to say we're definitely going to talk in these podcasts about things that the episodes might have used, um, but it's, it's not going to be a, a major emphasis of it because it's just not what Barks fans are, are really that into. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I'm not, I'm not proud to admit, too proud to admit that I still enjoy both, both of the iterations of the show um any other thoughts or questions before we talk about the the story beats and the plot um no i don't think so excellent let's do it so I, i'm gonna go through um i mentioned to you when we were planning for this that th this was a challenging part segment for me last time because uh, Donald Duck Finds Pirate Gold was, you know, it was, it was like the cartoon storyboard that it was based on. It wasn't, um, it was very hard to summarize. It was very slapstick. This one is much more um, well plotted, I think. So I'm going to go through page by page and summarize the major and important story beats. But um, feel free to chime in if you have something to say, if you want to talk about it by all means. So uh, at the beginning of Donald Duck, Donald Duck and the Mummy's Ring, we see the nephews are pestering Donald as he's reading the morning paper. Um, Donald is reading about an, a museum exhibit 
that says, the headline says, Bay of El Daga sends two emissaries to bring back mummies of his ancestors. So the nephews have decided to go to the museum and see the mummies. Um, and Donald reveals that it's going to be their last chance because the mummies are going to get moved, taken away the next day. There is a reference to a curse that's been placed on anyone disturbing the mummies, which I, I've got to imagine is not the, the old cliché for us that it is at this time by, by now back compared to back when this was written. It was probably in that uh, Boris Karloff movie you mentioned, right? Yeah, I, I've never actually seen, but I think every, every mummy movie is about a curse, right? And upsetting the tomb. Right. Um, so on the way to the museum, so we're on page two, on the way to the museum, they get beckoned by a scruffy looking, I think you could only describe him as a bum, a guy who's trying to sell them a elegant ring worth $50. The guy's very persuasive. Um, Donald declines the ring and the guy just goes ahead and gives it to him. And he alludes to having bad luck ever since he swiped it. So they take a look at the ring and they notice that it's got a symbol of three serpents on it. And they assume that maybe it belonged to one of those mummies. And this is the moment when the Pete lookalike approaches from behind them and starts to harass them about the ring. He starts to manhandle Donald. He's going to take the ring, but the nephews intervene by poking a, a hot roasted peanut stand in them and they get away. They figure this has got to be the mummy's ring because they're seeing bad luck from what they suppose is a curse. Um, Donald's skeptical, but uh, Huey has put the ring on and it is stuck on his finger. He definitely never played any Dungeons and Dragons because you know, don't just put a random ring on your finger. It might be cursed and you might never be able to take it off again. <laughs> I also, uh, I thought it was interesting. Another thought I had was uh, after reading the first issue that you read with Eric, uh, and it ends with them uh, being rich beyond their wildest dreams from all the treasure they found. And here they're just walking around. He doesn't want to blow 50 cents on on a ring that's worth $50. And I was wondering about uh, continuity and when continuity was invented. <laughs> these are very episodic. There's very little continuity in these. You know, Barks himself was kind of working anonymously. There was never any, like, idea that he was going to get to... You know, there are not going to be any, like, continued in the next story, storylines. There's definitely no Marvel Cinematic Universe to this. So there, there will be characters that Barks likes and he's going to come back to, but he just figures that out very organically. It's like so many shows like The Simpsons, where um, they kind of etch-a-sketch things back to the status quo. I also am struck by how different Donald is in these issues from my perception of what Donald is as a character. And I, I think of him as more kind of a, a goofy-like character, kind of fumbling around and, and kind of hapless. <laughs> and in this, he's like this tough, streetwise, you know, uh, working class guy. And I think the first thing he says in this issue is he's working on improving his mind, <laughs> which seems like, it doesn't seem like something, you know, 1960s Donald Duck would say in a, in a Disney cartoon, you know? Definitely. I, I love this because, um, you know, 
I'm so used to these. So this is the default Donald for me, but I love hearing the things that come to mind for you as you're reading this for the first time. This is what people really like about the Barks version of Donald. You know, he's more of an everyman. Um, he's not the like simmering ball of id. You know, he's got a temper in these, definitely. He's going to fly off the handle. I, I'm struck by, I mean, even uh, when Pete or whoever this is is picking him up and like has him up off the ground, holding him by the neck with two hands. And he's saying, what did you do with the ring? And Donald says, I forget. <laughs> Cause he's just like this tough. He, he slips it to Huey behind his back while he's talking to Pete. I think in, in sort of this post-depression storytelling, Americans really liked their characters to be very scrap, you know, and uh, self-reliant. Donald's got a lot of faults in these, but he's, he's much more complex than he was. And, and he's going to evolve a lot after this one in pretty uh, pretty quick time. All right, so we're going to take up back in the museum, or they're going to arrive at the museum. It transitions quickly into the display that they're looking at. Um, I really like the art. I, I think you can tell that um, this is one of the scenes where Barks was you know, referencing something that he saw because the, um, the art of the Egyptian exhibit uh, is really striking. I like the perspective here. They are in front of a couple of sarcophagi. I think that's how you pluralize that. It is. And uh, they kind of dare themselves to peek inside, and they do. And we don't actually see more than a glimpse of the mummy that's inside, um, but they do see a mummy, and they see some evidence of, some, of a robbery. Um, they see an empty box that they guess corresponds to the ring that is stuck on Huey's finger. Then we see that there are a couple of very sinister looking guys dressed in, um, we're meant to peg them as Egyptian garb are behind them. Uh, they have to get out of there. So I wondered how much of this was, was a contrivance to let the plot move along and how much of it is how different the culture is in the early 40s, but that these these random schmoes can just walk into <laughs> they they probably bought a ticket into the museum but then they just walk into some other wing where there are no people and where there are these mummies on display there's not a security guard there's not even a velvet rope they just kind of walk up lift it up take a peek inside what's going on in here anything of value i also find it remarkable that huey is already wearing an egyptian ring that matches this stuff right now and Actually, my first thought as the two guys showed up behind him is, Huey's going to jail now. He's going to jail because <laughs> they have the thing open. He is obviously wearing some ancient Egyptian jewelry, and it's very plain that he's probably taken that from inside the uh, the uh, sarcophagus and his story that a bum handed this to me on the street for free. It's probably not going to fly with the authorities. But luckily, luckily no one apparently noticed that. Yeah, I remember um, I remember reading as a kid, feeling a little bit stressed about that. I was like, oh, no, he's going to get caught. But uh, I think I, I think it really is the case that people were a lot more cavalier about, um, you know, antiquities back then. Not that they would have allowed things to be stolen straight out of the museum. But have you ever seen those pictures of people like climbing on the pyramids and just the way the casual way that people treated stuff back in the day? So on the next page, we find out about those two. Uh, Donald calls them tough-looking guys. Um, I'm going to imagine they're talking to the museum curator. He tells them that these are the emissaries of the Bay of El Daga. 
and he explains that they are the ones getting the mummies ready to ship back to their ancestral homeland. Um, and they find out that the Bay of El Daga has been, he's characterized as being sore at modern life and wanting to restore everything back to how it was in ancient times. So now he's taking everything that he wants under the threat of starting a war. I was going to talk about this later, but I just, I think it's interesting how um, when we read this, Ryan, I think we're supposed to like feel like the Bay is really overstepping his bounds. And <laughs> can you believe that he's acting that way? You know, now we we kind of understand that a lot of the stuff in our museums has really been stolen from other cultures and there's a big repatriation movement. So I, I definitely read that differently than I did when I was a child. Yeah, my note, my note I have here is, why is the Bay of Aldaga so sore at the pillaging of his cultural heritage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So at the end of this page, Huey realizes that he has left his cap probably in the mummy room and he needs to go back and get it. Uh, so on the next page, he circles past the two emissaries who are just looking with severest expressions that anyone could. And the last we see of him at this point is him looking to see if it fell into the sarcophagus. Cut to Donald and the other nephews um, waiting outside. And, you know, to me, it's amazing that an adult would like let the kid go back in the museum all by himself. But Again, kids ran around from morning till dusk back in the day. Even even in our day. I mean, I just, I was an only child. I was just riding my bike around the neighborhood by myself. Yeah, check in and make sure you're back by the time the sun's gone down. I know. I, I had that child. I had a childhood a lot closer to the one that Huey Dewey and Louie had. Um, and, and of course, this is Huey who has the ring on his finger. He's gone missing at this point. The Donald and the nephew, the other nephews are searching for him. We see them in the museum. On the next page, there's more sequence where they're searching and they're in the room with the sarcophagus and suddenly it trembles and it moves. And Donald runs out in terror after he's just given some bluster about how brave he is. Um, and apparently they're too scared to go back in because they think they've just seen evidence of a mummy. Um, so they go to report it to the police. Although it's worth pointing out that after the sarcophagus moves, uh, Donald is the one who disappears like a lightning flash and the mm -hmm. nephews are like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Just kind of yeah. walk out. <laughs> Donald is the one with a clear uh, mummy phobia. Right. Um, perhaps there was some scarring event with a mummy when he was a kid, and uh, he's never really gotten over it. And He may not be the, the ball of rage-id that he is in the cartoons, but he is definitely the one who feels... He, he, he does fly off the handle more in these than the nephews do. So they, they report to the police, but the police basically go with the old diplomatic immunity saw. We couldn't arrest those men. They're, they're just generally skeptical. It's up to Donald and the boys. And on the next page, they go back and they browbeat the curator about the location of the emissary. And he reveals that they have left. They've taken the mummies and um, they've left for their ship which is called the Amnesia Castle. I don't think that's referenced at all in the rest of the story, but they they know what they need to do now. They need to get to that ship. 
And again, the, the cab driver lets them know that, um, oh, you're not going to be able to get on that ship unless you're an ambassador or something. On the next page, Donald spots um, something, which we find out is a costume shop, pulls over and <laughs> they acquire some pretty ridiculous costumes. You, you would accurately call parts of this story orientalist is probably the term that we would use today to describe kind of the hodgepodge of um, <laughs> Eastern tropes and dress and attitudes. So they're dressed in kind of random, someone's idea of kind of Eastern get okay. Yeah, a very rich uh, Indian, some kind of leader, whatever, you know, whatever the equivalent of a baron would be. I would say he has a sash. Right. And then uh, the, the nephews have turbans on for some reason as his attendants. So, yeah, they, they've never met real Asian people before, but they've heard about them on the radio. That's what this costume is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they try to bluster their way onto the ship. Um, and the, the guard sees right through them. I, I really like the line when he kicks them out, of all the phonies I ever saw, you guys are the phoniest. <laughs> and so the nephews have to go with plan B. And on the next page, um, they just offer themselves up as, as workers. But Deckhands. Deckhands. They offer themselves up as deckhands. And I feel like this is one of those historical things where there was a time where uh, a man could just offer himself up as a deckhand and see the world. Maybe that still goes on in some countries, but uh, th this to me is very archaic. Yeah. Now you need three references and uh, a LinkedIn page. <laughs> right. And you need to have uh, 10 years of experience in this programming language that's been around for five. Exactly. Hopefully you had some unpaid internships for a while as an intern while you were getting your bachelor's in, in deckhanding. Right. So so our deckhands are um, working on the ship. The ship's still still at the dock. So their, their idea is that they're just going to get in, find Huey, and get out. And unfortunately, uh, one of the sees them snooping around, and um, they ask about the emissaries, and he tells them to get back to work, mind their own business. And uh, at this point, the ship has sailed so they're they're really in it deep i have some i have some nephew thoughts yeah um, um i've i've noticed they um they have statements that they would like to make but they each make a third of the statement that one of them will say the first part and then one of them say with the middle of the sentence and one of them will say the last part of the sentence yeah it reminds me of uh there's some less famous x-men characters called the the stepford cuckoos um, who are these um, blonde quintuplets, they're teenagers, and they all have very powerful telepathic powers, but they can kind of merge their telepathic powers and kind of direct it all, you know, in the same place or whatever. <clears throat> but they will actually talk this way sometimes, where they'll, they'll, one of them will start a sentence and the other one will finish it. And it made me wonder if, if the nephews here are also telepathic, and if so, they should use their telepathy to find where Huey is and say, you know, They'll read Huey's mind to see where he is. He's inside something dark. Um, and I also I also thought that maybe from this point on in the story, Dewey and Louis should each say a third of a sentence and leave the last third of the sentence implied and just have just have this vacant spot where where Huey would have finished it. <laughs> Very mournful, kind of looking at the camera. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, that's great. Maybe maybe they're just too young and they haven't fully honed their uh, psychic powers. Yeah, another of those examples where this is just the way that they're written and I'm used to how they interact. So it's a hoot um, seeing you kind of like highlight the thing that um, is is really background to me. This is this is how the nephews talk. This is what they do. So we're on the ship at this point. It's uh, after hours. It's nighttime and, and they can go snooping. And there's a scene where um, Donald is spying through a, uh, one of the windows and describing what he sees to the other nephews um, who are obviously undergoing some pretty bad seasickness because when he talks about the food, start to get nauseous and eventually have to... Um, leave Donald propped up, propped up by a chair so they can go throw up, we assume, a neat sight gag. But by the next page, they're not there to be lookouts for Donald. So he gets discovered again by that porter and they get put on galley duty. A galley, of course, being the KP, the kitchen work, and they have to peel scores and scores of onions. Um, and I was confused by the fact that they're crying when I was a young kid because I had never cut onions before. So I didn't understand that that provoked tears. <laughs> I actually thought they were peeling potatoes until you until you said that. But I see the bag actually says the word onions on it. So. So while they're in the midst of this, it's a very dramatic moment where the door opens behind them and we see a. Uh, a mummy, just a figure wrapped in bandages, silently appears behind them, raises his fist menacingly, and strikes all three of them in one fell swoop, knocking them out. I was totally bought in when I read this as an eight-year-old. I was like, that's a mummy. This is really freaky. Loved it. This was a, one of the scarier stories I'd probably read up to this point. Uh, I, my perception is that he, I think uh, I, my perception is that he smacked because all, all three ducks are in sitting closely together in a row and that he smacked Donald's head hard enough to kind of bump, 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 hit, hit them all in a row like those. Like, those, like the, um, what is the cat's cradle? Desk. Is that what you call yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we get a little transition that says minutes pass. So they've obviously been knocked out for a while. Um, and they notice that some sausages have been stolen while they were out. Um, they assume it's some hungry stowaway. And this gives them the impetus to go prowling. So Donald is hungry. He gets himself a sandwich. And um, while he's distracted, a hand reaches out of one of those portholes wrapped in bandages and steals his sandwich. Um, kind of an interesting transition from that like eerie scene last page to this. This looks pretty slapstick and uh, goofy to me. So Donald sees that his sandwich is gone and he wants to look through the porthole. And on the next page, we see Donald looking through and he gets an expression of abject terror and he starts shrieking and indeed the porter and the emissaries come out and see him shrieking with the nephews trying to calm him down and he cries out when he's asked what's wrong he says that the mummies the mummies they're sitting up in their cases eating my sandwich and the emissaries look on um in kind of confusion and um you know before i go to the next page i i thought this page was pretty striking because um he just looks 
terrified. You know, it's a really good depiction of fear in this. Yeah, story. he definitely doesn't look like he's, um, you know, working a con or whatever with these guys. He's terrified of something. On the next page, the emissaries, they are convinced and they call out for food for their ancestors. All the best dishes brought out and left near the sarcophagi. They explain that this is something that we, we all learn about in grade school, that when the like pharaohs were buried, that they were uh, buried next to, to find food and stuff so they could take it into the land of the dead. And, you know, they... they complain about how their loved ones have lain in museums in the Western world for, for centuries. <clears throat> and the nephews have a moment of skepticism at the end of this page saying that they've never heard of mummies eating. I'll also point out this, even just on this page, you get a good example of Barks writing different voices to where people talk very differently from each other. And uh, yeah, I feel like the emissaries have the best English of anybody in this issue. <laughs> they, they talk like very highly educated people. This one here you correctly, correctly uses the past participle of to lie, have lain. Uh, which yeah. uh, which Pete at the you know at the beginning of this ep of this issue would not have nor would would Donald have and even the kids you know they they use um, kind of contractions and everything mummies eaten e a t i n yeah. apostrophe and and it shows how you know all these people are from different places they have different backgrounds different education levels which is you know different class you know, yeah most uh, authors of novels would take care to to do in their novels but you wouldn't necessarily expect in a comic yeah i really i really appreciate you pointing that out that's a, a great thing that i think i just um absorbed but didn't ever you know i've read these since i was eight so um this is kind of part of my dna but uh that that's a really good point um i think you can definitely hear their voices so um on the next page uh, Donald and the boys, they are sent to the brig. One of the nephews, uh, I think it's Louis, explains that, um, you know, this is clear what's going on now. They're not real mummies. One of them, um, one of them they've surmised must be Huey, and he he's been smuggled out of the museum wrapped like a mummy and they're asking themselves well who, who's the other mummy they're just there there's a lot going on a lot of the you know the rhythm of the story a lot of the deduction of the story goes on in these four panels where they figure out that well, the other mummy must be a kidnapper he must be after the ring and um in the last panel of this one, Donald realizes that they, they've got a time constraint now that they've got to tell them what's going on or they risk having Huey and the kidnapper being sealed up forever. And uh, before going to the next page, you know, I, I think that this one is really an interesting, really interesting because um, this could have been much more of a mystery right? And he just chooses to have the, the characters figure it out, even though it was structured like a mystery before that. Yeah, this was uh, one of my favorite pages in the issue where, uh, for one thing, they're not thrown off balance at all by having just been thrown in the brig. They're just like, okay, let's figure this out. And the three of them sit down and start kind of debating it with each other Yeah, uh, with some pretty sound reasoning, you know? Uh, I think, uh, you know, based on their observations, they come to some pretty sound conclusions. I think it uh, makes them more charismatic as the heroes 
of the story. You know, you want your hero to be sharp and, and able to kind of figure out what's going on. I, I agree completely. I like um, I like that the characters seem really sharp and deductive here. Um, I find it really infuriating in a lot of media where characters are dumb for no good reason. Like this does seem like something they should figure out and they do. Um, so on the next page, it's the next day, they find out that the Bay, the Bay's emissaries have already left. Um, so they are realizing that they've got to uh, risk their necks to, to save them. And they, they dive off the ship to leave and to have a chance to catch up with them. And it's um, pretty dramatic. Uh, I really like these couple of panels where they make that decision. Yeah. I like um, the the frame right before they dive where they show the, the trireme sailing away, I feel like is where they really start to convey this sense of a much bigger world than, than their little town. Um, and it's full of all kinds of interesting things that we just haven't found yet. And it's just kind of this um, mysterious parallel world to ours. And I also like how Donald checks with the nephews first. <laughs> He's like, we, we have to risk, risk our necks to save him. And they go, yeah, okay, let's do it. And that, you're right, that's a great panel, the, the galley or whatever, just, um, I, I love the art in that one. And we definitely, I think, feel like we've arrived somewhere else. And, you know, I, I think I kind of criticized it earlier for Orientalism, um, and, and there's definitely a lot of that in this story, which is the nature of the time. But this panel, to me, really shows that Barks had an interest in this place and, and depicting it um, in a way that was accurate and uh, very loving, I think, because, you know, the camera really loves this, the, the virtual camera or whatever, really loves this panorama. So um, on the next page, they are escaping and um, it, it's a big escape actually for just a couple of people, you know, deckhands leaving the ship because um, they've got bullets being fired at them. Um, they have to run through some alleys where just some of the local stray dogs are nipping at their heels. Um, and at some point they, they stir up a mob that runs after them. So they have to duck down kind of a, a little back alley. Um, and they can't hide there. So um, we, we kind of cut away to, from the point where they're hiding and there is a local who directs the, the local police after them. And there's a, you know, a, this is a pretty unfortunate panel where they've dressed as locals and they've, the artwork shows them having darkened their skin. Um, and, you know, they, they redirect them um, they're posing as locals, basically, and they they misdirect them so that the mob runs off. And all um, still, all still, all still speaking English, of course. Everybody in this situation is speaking English, as the Egyptian cops are asking. Apparently, Egyptian fisher people. I, I also think, I mean, just the first three frames here. It's first uh, some kind of machine gun fire coming from off off frame, maybe from the boat, uh, and then the second frame is dogs they're being chased by dogs and the third frame is a mob which is not even in the frame they're just saying there's a mob after us and and i think you know in anywhere else i mean in a movie this would be a, a 10 minute 
action set piece. <laughs> but here it's just, we got to hurry through it because we got more story to tell. And they're just like, here's some danger. Yeah, and going forward, you know, it's there's not going to be this kind of like pacing, I think, as much. This This is more of a hallmark of the early Bark stuff. So the next page has them finding a, a, a ship, an abandoned uh, a felucca. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, but um, an Egyptian style ship. Again, Barks clearly got it right. And they venture up the Nile. And this is like the tourist part of the story, right? Where all of a sudden um, the, the ducks and we get distracted and, and become sightseers. And um, they start to look at the sides, things on the bank of the Nile. Um, they crash their ship and they, they lose some time and they have to remind themselves, okay, we're dedicating ourselves to getting Huey. And uh, they, they end up drifting that night in a windless period. And then on the next page, uh, Louie has the bright idea to hook onto a passing steamship or freighter or something, and they make much better progress up the Nile. Um, by the time the other ducks have woken up, they've, made, they've navigated 300 miles up the Nile, and they've approached the bay's barge off the port bow. And then on the next page, um, they approach, we kind of see El Daga, uh, which is a cool looking ancient city. They are approaching as there's a ceremony that they surmise is for the return of the mummies. Um, and as they approach, they are attacked by a hail of arrows. So they've got to circle back and think of another approach. There's so much peril for the kids in this, in this comic. Um, we have, we have, you know, just two pages ago, we had the, the guns from the, from the, you know, cruise ship or whatever that was, the dogs, the mobs, and now uh, arrows being shot at the kids. And all of this is to save Huey, who is going to be buried alive yeah. um, as, as a mummy. And um, I think, man, like there's no, uh, I think even when I was a kid, maybe the, the cartoons and stuff didn't have this kind of mortal danger for the kids. Uh, did the 80s DuckTales show have, you know, they're going to get swept off a cliff and eaten by sharks or something? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think there was this much, like, human-directed violence, you know? I don't yeah, think... Yeah. I think these older comics, uh, especially in, like, the 40s uh, and, and so forth, were a lot more violent in that kind of, like you know, with fists and knives and stuff like that. I, I, I like to, I like to tell people about the old Mickey Mouse comics and, and how, um, how incredibly violent those are. But, you know, you were talking about the, the Hayes Code before we started recording. I don't know if you wanted to, to mention that or if you were uh, saving that powder for, for later. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking, uh, when I was reading it, I was thinking about, you know, there's a lot of, this is some kind of rough stuff, and uh, I was thinking, does this violate the, the Comics Code Authority? And so I looked up um, when that was, and that code is from 1954. This comic, of course, is from 1943, as you mentioned. So we still haven't gotten to this kind of a regulation of, of the comics. For people who maybe don't, don't read as many comics, it's... Um, the government started to get really concerned about how comics were influencing kids 
and, you know, brainwashing them into being violent criminals and everything, just like rap music did in the early 90s and uh, video games are doing to us now and <laughs> everything. Every kind of media needs to be <clears throat> regulated for, for its uh, violent brainwashing effect. So um, to kind of get ahead of it, um, the comics industry imposed this code upon themselves and, and decided this would be how, you know, all the comics that get sold in mainstream shops would need to meet these, these standards. Yeah. And <clears throat> a great thing to read about it. Like it's fascinating that, that attempt, um, at regulation and, and what it did to the industry. And, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that at all, um, until you mentioned it. And I do think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, as we approach that dividing line, if uh, if that really affects Bark's um, stories at all. Obviously, the the funny animal books were probably a lot more immune. That that wasn't. They were being directed at the old like the the EC crime comics and uh, the superhero stuff. But I I got to imagine there are some knock on effects, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's. I mean, it covers most of the history of comics like I, I tried to find out when it ended and it started to get a little softer in the in the 80s and 90s and stuff and and then uh, in 2001 uh, Marvel submits an X-Force comic to get approved by the Comics Code Authority and they said no this is this is too violent or something you got to take take this thing out and Marvel just said I don't think we will I don't feel like doing that and so they just stopped submitting them and that was how it ended 2001 from 1954 that's crazy. So we are back to the, the next page cuts to in in the palace of the Bay of Eldaga. And they are um, in the midst of their ceremony. They are preparing to bind the cases um, outside the palace. The nephews, Donald and the nephews are um, pondering how to get past a guard you know, Donald's getting into the spirit of things, I guess, because he wants to make an old Egyptian weapon and he makes, they call it a slingshot. I, I know it as a sling, right? What David used against Goliath. And uh, on the next page, man, he just absolutely brains that guy. He's definitely dead. Right. <laughs> he catches a rock that big on the side of the head from that distance. He's, yeah. not, he's not getting back up from that. He's at least not eating solid foods anymore. But but it, while there's a lot of peril, it's at least still a funny animal comic. Um, so they they rush inside after they they brain that poor guard, um, and they stop them in the nick of time from sealing the cases. Um, and the Bay of El Daga is wondering who you know who are these guys and his emissaries indicate there's some fools who followed them from america and they're crazy and um he has them captured and he yeah he, he does seem uh pretty harsh <laughs> definitely his first instinct is well i mean they didn't even know who was on the boat or what the boat was coming for and they just started shooting arrows at it already but once once the emissaries say, oh, these guys are crazy, he says, okay, let's throw them to the crocodiles. So Donald uh, pipes up and he says that the emissaries can prove that the people in the cases are alive. He um, makes them confirm that the food that they had ordered laid out was eaten. Um, and then the bay surprises his emissaries by insisting they be released, the, that Donald at least 
be released and the nephews um, saying that he didn't attend Yarvard University without learning that mummies don't eat. So there was a little um, just surprise moment where we learned that um, the Bay, while he is against um, westernization, it's not through a lack of familiarity. He's actually been educated at uh, their analog for Harvard. And he, he, well, his emissaries seem to believe that the mummies are, have some kind of supernatural element to them, the way ancient Egyptians did. Uh, even the Bey, who loves ancient Egypt and wants, wants everything to be like that again, seems to me not to. He, he seems to be, ha- have solely sentimental, um, nostalgic kind of uh, feelings toward the mummies rather than... Um, yeah. You're right. He may not buy fully into it. That's interesting. He he definitely they give him some surprising depth in in a, a very quick number of panels. I think so. He, on the next page, he agrees. Yeah, there there must be live people in the sarcophagi, and um, then in the next panel, after he agrees and they've gotten their hopes up, his face really darkens uh, in an expression that I, I found really intimidating as a kid. And he says that, um, you know, those live people then can take the place of the ancestors. And he insists that the ceremony must continue. Donald is, uh, you know, throwing a Hail Mary pass. He says, wait, the little boy in one of those cases, he, he notices the seal of the three serpents. He says that um, he's got a ring with that seal and the bay is shocked. It, it comes to him that this is the ring, the missing ring of the three serpents. I thought it was interesting that he let the other ducks go if he's still going to bury Huey. He says, I'm going to knowingly bury this kid. I know there's a kid in there. Um, and But you guys are free to go. You can just hang out here and watch. <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of selective about uh, who gets who gets victimized here. So on the next page, he is very excited and he agrees. Let's open the cases. Um, there's some narration where everyone that that really provides some good suspense here. I think everyone waits silently and the high priests open the sarcophagi. Um, and we do see two figures. Donald and the audience immediately knows that one of them is Huey. And then the other one is a big mummy who um, leaps out of the sarcophagus and tries to escape. Um, he jumps out of a balcony that looks like it would have killed him from the fall. And Donald grabs a bandage and um, you know we get a classic mummy unfurling. And um, we find out as it unfurls what we what most people who are not small children guessed immediately is that it was the guy that tried to rob him, the Pete lookalike, who tried to rob him back in America. They return to the throne room, and we have just a really shockingly genial convivial meeting with the bay considering that he was moments ago ordering them thrown to the crocodile pit because he is he's got Huey sitting on his lap he's like beaming like a, like a proud uncle holding the ring which Huey has returned to him and it's been clear that they've been looking for it for 3000 years they say um, Huey reports in very 
economical storytelling that um, the thief, the robber had followed them back to the museum, saw him trying to get the ring. Um, and basically when he heard someone else coming into the room, um, stashed Huey and himself into the sarcophagus and then was forced to disguise himself as a mummy. He was just really in the wrong place at the wrong time. Huey mentions that, yeah, now, now he had to keep me fed so that he would only be guilty of kidnap rather than murders, which is why they were um, stealing food on the ship, of course. So a lot of storytelling on this page, a lot of um, quick resolution here. Any thoughts? It's interesting that Huey couldn't get the ring off then, but uh, seems to have popped it off now out of frame uh, yeah. to, give, to give to the bay. Probably the lost a little bit of weight. doesn't... That's probably true. That's actually not a bad, uh, not a bad idea. The uh, the Winnie the Pooh method of uh, getting getting unstuck. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and and again, just the bay has has become this teddy bear in this span of time, which um, I I noticed as kind of jarring even as a kid. You know, I I don't think as a kid that I had expected. I'm sure I knew that it must have been the robber, but um, I know I went into this thinking it was going to be, there was going to be a real mummy in this. So there were things as a kid that I definitely didn't pick up on, but um, I noticed how jarring that was. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard handbrake turn uh, character, character change. So um, the next page is the last one, and it wraps up with them sailing back with a, a just fabulous treasure that, of course, is going to get etched sketched away by the next adventure. And Huey realizes that he has lost his cap again, uh, must be back there in the mummy case, and they've learned their lesson. They're going to use that treasure to buy a new one. Um, and the last frame, they sail past what, what are a couple of very famous uh, Egyptian monuments that I have somewhere in my notes. Um, and they're singing Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here in just a very nice, tidy ending. So that was, uh, that was The Mummy's Ring. And um, boy, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed uh, narrating that and, and hearing your thoughts as a newbie going over this. I want to talk about kind of our overall thoughts about this one. I think uniquely in this one, the, the feeling that I can remember having the first time I read this is a little bit of disappointment, right? Because this one ends up, it's billed as being about a mummy, um, but it's not. There's not a real mummy in this at all. It's just some crook in disguise. And so the, the, there was a mummy in the sarcophagus. Right. You know, when the, at the at the start of the frame, and I assume it's been shoved into a garbage can in the museum yeah, somewhere exactly. by Pete. <laughs> but there was no living mummy that that walked around um, and had a curse or anything. So, um, you know, that was what I kind of took from this one was a little bit of buyer's remorse of oh man, you know that that's kind of a letdown. But I I came back to this and I reread it many times. Um, I think without without knowing until much later that this was the very first fully plotted, um, fully drawn Bark story. 
And um, I, I really came to appreciate this one over the years. And I have, I think, much more appreciation for it now. I, I really enjoyed the, um, the story elements and um, just the plotting and a lot of the way that Barks um, integrated um, you know, Egyptian lore and uh, Egyptian culture. And, um, you know, it really, it really does feel like a travelogue once they get there. So um, really enjoyed this one, even if I felt like I, I was uh, misdirected a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about your, your thoughts, because I can't remember you reading one of these um, and really engaging with it. So, so what did you think overall of the mummy's ring. Um, I thought it was cool. Uh, in, in the modern day, they would have stretched this over a few issues, probably, of this Indiana Jones-esque international treasure hunt, perilous adventure, rescue. And, and um, I think, you know, uh, when, I, when I first read over it, I was thinking, um, you know, this is, this is kind of a possibly problematic view of this... Um, uh, this Egyptian leader who is very backward-looking. Uh, and then uh, on the second read, I realized um, Karl Barks really just wanted a story to take place in ancient Egypt. He just wanted to write an adventure that happens in ancient Egypt, but he didn't want to come up with some time travel rules or anything. So he, you know, he gave one frame to, ah, he's, you know, he doesn't like the modern world. He likes things uh, in... in a little more traditional and and that way we were able to get the the kind of adventure that barks wanted i was impressed at how capable um donald is as as the hero here like even in this last frame they're they're plainly still like sailing up the nile in this little you know three-man sailboat they're apparently going to sail this across the atlantic uh -huh. <laughs> um back back to their hometown and uh i mean he is in a little sailor outfit and uh, a couple pages ago, he was repairing a, a boat that had wrecked. And it seems like he has some real skills. He's not just some, some goofball that's uh, doing his best or whatever. He, uh, he has some abilities and he's leveraging them to try and uh, reach his objectives here. Yeah. And, and again, I, I've got to think that after the Depression, this is just kind of like what Americans felt like they could do. You know, they, they probably... Yeah long enough needing to to make do we'll, we'll take a moment for kind of uh final thoughts but before before we do that there's just a few other reflections that i wanted to do I, i'd love to talk a little bit kind of specifically we, we touched on how it holds up like i said there's some some problematic depictions in this um i think for the most part this is generally respectful, at least relative to a lot of, of media of this time. You know, obviously there are some things that wouldn't be shown or presented today, but, um, you know, apart from just sort of the general Eastern um, Orientalist mindset, I, I think he, he did a pretty good job, again, in relative terms, grading on a curve, you know, I think any media that you look at from this time is probably going to look uh, pretty dated with some attitudes towards, towards 
people from, quote, the East. But apart from looking at, you know, stuff that might be problematic, I also think it might be interesting to highlight some things that are just out of time, right? Some some things that are interestingly dated now. And, and I noticed, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the story, Donald references doing all his shopping at the five and 10 when he's getting mugged by Pete. I, I didn't know what a five and 10 was. Did you catch that? Uh, I, I've always assumed it was, um, you know, some kind of thrift shop or a pawn shop. Um, yeah, I, I looked it up and a five and 10 is what you might think it is. It's where everything costs either a nickel or a dime. So it's basically an old school, uh, dollar store. I noticed, um, I, I made note of uh, when they misspelled kidnapped the first time they said kidnapped in the museum. And uh, then they spelled it the same way on the next page and the next page. And uh, here at the end, when we were um, doing our exposition dump, uh, you know, he was still a kidnapper uh, with one P. And, and I thought maybe this is just an old timey way of writing that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that this time as well. I also you know, had to look up the song because I've, I've heard those snatches of song lyrics um, a few times, but uh, Hail, Hail, the gang's all here, what they're singing at the end, which is very appropriate. Um, I guess it's from Pirates of Penzance and um, must have been just huge in the popular imagination at the time. I don't think it's something that we would casually sing anymore. <laughs> That's probably true. I also want to talk about if there's appearances in other media, so this, to my knowledge, this was never used as the basis for a DuckTales story, which many of them will have been. But I think famously, uh, there's a sequence in the opening that is an homage to this. If you go back and watch the DuckTales theme song, um, there is a mummy waking up, looking at a red glowing ring. And I think that's, you know, again, part of the misdirection because I definitely seen DuckTales by the time I read this, even if I read Mark's stories earlier, you know, that gave me reason to expect a real mummy. There just never was. There, there aren't any, um, I, I haven't talked to you about Mark's other career uh, as, as an oil painter, but um, that's something that I will highlight in these episodes if he ever based a painting off this one. Um, to my knowledge, there aren't any big oil paintings taken from this story. Um, do you have any final thoughts about this story? Oh, I, let, me, let me interject really quick because I did forget um, to talk about, we, we talked about how we felt about the story, but for the general consensus, I like to take a look at, there's a website called Index, I-N-D-U-C-K-S, that's kind of an aggregate where they rate all of the Disney stories. They let users rate them. So they get a pretty good um, critical consensus for many of these stories. And this one had a pretty strong 7.6 rating, which puts it as 254 out of more than 40,000 stories, not just Bark stories. Um, that doesn't put it like in the very, very upper echelon, but that would put this as a pretty well-regarded Bark story. So I would say that just, you know, as is fitting, but this is the first Bark story and I'll let this kind of be my, my final thoughts. Um, 
the the this is really the story that set the template for what Barks was going to do going forward. You know, these really grand adventures where through happenstance um, they get swept up into something and they have to figure out their way out of a pretty big jam. Um, and along the way, we oftentimes get treated to um, some really interesting exploration of another culture or um, you know some some cool aspect of, of mythology. Um, so I, I think it was just a really, really fun to revisit this one. And I'm really glad that I got to. Um, do you have any any closing thoughts about this? Um, I think, uh, you know, for a, for a debut story, essentially, um, uh, pretty impressive. I would, I would have expected, uh, you know, any, any creator's first attempt to be a little bit more of a, a bungle and where you're kind of feeling out, you don't really have the right, the right tone yet. You don't really have the right pacing yet. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, I, I think it shows a lot of creativity and, um, uh, kind of an interest in, in, you know, really telling something in interesting instead of, I think a lot of the comics of this era might have been more, um, you know, I don't know, it could have been something very overly tame and um, boring because, you know, you can just sell it for, for a dime and, and they'll just buy whatever, so why make it good? But he made it good anyway. Right. Yeah, there, there's a lot of love and care that's gone into this, obviously. Well, um, Ryan, thank you so much for, for joining me. I'm really thrilled to get to do this and um, looking forward to having you back for some more of these. Um, so if you have any thoughts or comments, listeners, um, you can feel free to drop us a line at barksremarks at gmail.com. And um, please join us the next time on Barks Remarks when we talk about too many pets. Thank you very much. And this is Mark jumping in one last time. I had forgotten to mention a couple of things in my notes. The fact that Barks copied some of the landmarks um, that he saw in the National Geographic article, Daily Life in Ancient Egypt. Um, some of the sites depicted in this story include the Great Sphinx of Giza on page 17, the Skyline of Cairo on page 17 and 18, um, the Pyramid of Maidun, uh, Maidun on page 19, the Pyramid of Djoser on page 20, and the Mortuary Temple of Hatshepsut on page 21 and 22, as well as the Colossi of Memnon. And I wanted to introduce our Ask a Kid segment um, so give it a listen. Hello, this is Ryan. I'm back for the Ask a Kid segment, and I am here with an actual kid. What is your first name, kid? Penny. Penny. And what grade are you in? First grade. Okay. So um, we just read Donald Duck and the Mummy's Ring. So uh, you have some experience with comics. Do you... Uh -huh. Did you like this one? Uh-huh. And did you feel like you understood what was going on? Kind of. Kind of? Were there some parts that were hard to understand? No. No? Was it scary? No. No? Were you worried for the for the nephews? No. No? Why weren't you worried? I don't know. You knew they were going to be okay? Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. 
Okay. And um, so what was your favorite part? The part with the um, find the ring. Okay. Sure. Did you think the book was fun? Yeah. Yeah? Um, would you uh, read more of these if there were more of these? No, I think I like other books a little bit better. Yeah? Okay. Okay. And I like kitties. That's pretty great. Who doesn't like kitties? All right. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you, Penny. We'll see you all next time. Mm -hmm.